All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, author of the book Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. You guys on the line, I got my friend Mike Swanson. Well, first of all, he's a brilliant genius economist type. And secondly, a very successful investor and also a great revisionist historian, of course, author of The War State, which you guys have all read by now. And Why Vietnam, which ow, I just punched myself in the leg. Because I haven't read it yet because I've been so busy, but I know it's probably the best history of the origins of the Vietnam War from the inside scoop from all of uh, the papers that Mike got his hands on showing the internal communications inside the Pentagon as they're deciding the policy and all of that. Welcome back to the show, Mike. How are you, dude? Oh, I'm doing great. Great. That really hurt, by the way. I gave myself a dead leg <clears throat> and I'm going to have a bruise. Um. Mm. One day I'm going to read that thing. I can't wait to read it, honestly. I just, I can wait because I have to wait. But otherwise, I don't want to wait. Um, but I've been told that it's great and that I'm an idiot for putting it off. Well, if you read my book, then read Gareth Porter's book. Uh, that's all you need. Because mine ends in 1961 and his is pretty does a lot about the Kennedy era mostly. Oh, there you go. So he kind of picks up from where you leave off, huh? Yep. Great. And that's Perils of Dominance by Gareth, of course. Um, you know what's going to happen is, after the book is done, just like everything else in my life, after my next book is done, I'm going to... Uh, I've been thinking about this for a long time. I want to do... We'll have to find some kind of lull in the news to try to focus on Vietnam for like a month or something. i got so much I want to catch up on and read about, and especially with you and Gareth, but so much more too. And, well, you know, we've covered it over the years, that. but... Send me an email, and I'll give you, like, a list of two or three other books that, that are worth reading, too. His, his cool. book is really the best revisionist book of the Johnson administration, too, and the reasons for him escalating the war that's out so far. I mean, it's it's uh, not, not, not many people have, have studied that like you guys. Yeah. Well, I do have a whole grip on my shelf here of uh, quite a few I want to read. I mean, there's the classics, The Bright Shining Lie and The Best and the Brightest which I've never read either of those yet. Um, but uh, I've got quite a few more here, too. So anyway, I know it's a hell of a story. But um, listen, the reason I got you on the show is um, because I've got regime uncertainty. <laughs> and I saw your headline today at wallstreetwindow.com where you dispense all of your brilliant uh, economic and investment advice and you say that the Federal Reserve Open Market Committee did meet this morning and they decided to hold right where they're at, which I guess means, I don't know what. What does that mean? Well, we're, we're in an interesting moment. And one of your uh, assistants that set up this interview, he asked me a question about what's the money supply doing? And I went to look at that because, honestly, it's not something I track. Uh, frequently because it comes out so delayed that I can't use it to make trading decisions. But when I look at that, um, 
it shows that the money supply actually put in, it, it's been going down a little bit over the past uh, two years. It made, it surged, of course, in 2020 uh, when the Fed took interest rates to zero and, and the COVID stuff had all the shutdowns and just the deficit exploded and inflation exploded. But the Fed uh, then began to raise interest rates in 2022 and the money supply has slowly come down since then until October. And now it's starting to go back up. And the Federal Reserve in October, basically, uh, a couple Fed officials came out and said, we may not have to keep raising interest rates. We're probably at the peak of this interest rate hiking cycle. And a lot of people around the world trading the global markets began to buy bonds and bonds trade opposite to their yield. So them doing that help to actually lower things such as the mortgage rate uh, and the, the rate of interest corporations pay when they take out debt and so forth e before the Fed has even lowered interest rates. So financial conditions have eased. The money supply has actually been creeping up since October. And the Fed in the December meeting then predicted that it would lower interest rates uh, three times this year, and the first meeting was in January, the next meeting's in March, then there's one in May, and the problem is that <laughs> the economic conditions don't really justify lowering interest rates. Uh, and i explain that in two ways. First, the inflation uh, exploded in 2020 through 2022, or really 2021, 2022. And in 2022, the Federal Reserve said, we don't want things to go back to the way they were in the 1970s. Uh, stagflation, the Wall, the Wall Street Journal had a couple articles in May, June of that year that were basically leaks. Uh, and I think direct quotes from Jerome Powell in which they said that we're going to have to raise interest rates a lot and keep them there, even if it means a recession, until inflation completely goes away. And even after it goes away, uh, we may have to keep them this high at, at a higher level uh, in order to prevent people from getting the idea that in, we're just in a stagflationary environment. So what's happened is that inflation rate has come down. The CPI now is floating around 3%, right above 3%. And on an annualized basis, the Fed's target is to get that down to 2%. It's not there yet. But despite being not there yet, they're already, they've already set the stage for lower rates. So on that view, I don't think it's justified. Secondly, uh, the other reason the Fed would lower rates is if we're in a recession and the unemployment rate hasn't gone up. The GDP uh, is around 3% the last quarter and the economists and the Fed itself isn't projecting it's going to be negative this quarter. So <laughs> – 
these are reasons to think there's no justifiable basis for lowering rates and increasing the money supply uh, and make some people, myself included, speculate that, well, it's an election year and there's been years past where the Fed lowered rates uh, during election years to make whoever the president was happy. Uh, and they did that uh, when Nixon was president, when Johnson was president. And maybe that's one of the reasons they're so hell-bent on uh, setting the stage to lower rates. Whatever the case, the meeting came in January uh, just the other day. They didn't lower rates. They said they're not lowering rates in March either, or, or suggested they won't. They want to see more improvement in the inflation data is what the chairman said. But they have still set the stage on doing it in March and today the the stock market sold off yesterday after they said they're not going to lower rates uh, and this morning in the Wall Street Journal there were two articles in there one justifying lower rates claiming that the Federal Reserve has these economic uh, statistical systems that say interest rates are too high and then another article saying that the political situation has the Fed not wanting to lower rates too early, but also not wanting to do it in the fall, really close to the election. So therefore, they should do it in the spring. <laughs> so they basically justified lowering interest rates in May. All right. So. Yeah, I mean, it is all politics, right? That's the lens I look at it all through is too much price inflation on the shelf. It's going to really hurt Joe Biden for the election. But a crash and a recession is going to really hurt Biden for the election. Yeah. So they're trying really hard to do what they call this soft landing thing, right? Which I think I don't read Krugman, but I bet if I did, he would say we did it, right? We, we, um, we had to do all that stimulus to make up for the lockdown inflicted depression there. And so that created, yeah, sorry, some bubbles and some pretty high inflation. But then we raised up the rates and these technicians with their technocratic technical abilities here, they raised it just enough to pretty much lick inflation. You're right. It's at three, not two, but hey, good enough. And, um, and so go ahead and get things back to what they would call normal now. Whereas if they kept going, they might cause a real correction all the way uh, type of a crash and a panic and would hurt the incumbent. So did they not stick the landing here, Mike? Maybe that's what you're complaining about. They did such a good job of inflating and then deflating, but without going so far that they blew the whole thing up like they usually do. Well, I, I, I think that's a good concise uh, analysis of, of what's going on. Um, in fact, uh, I'm not sure the, the chairman, Jerome Powell, I'm not sure he's set to be on 60 minutes this weekend on Sunday and no one really knows, you know, what he's going to say, but at some point, and it may be this week, uh, weekend, which I would expect it to be in the spring. But maybe he's going to do it early, and that is declare victory and make the argument you just made. But the inflation rate has not gone 
below 3%. So to me, it's really premature if he does it this weekend. But the Fed statement they released even suggested that it said something like, we just need to see it going to towards the 2% target. Not even get there, you know, just go towards it uh, and make sure it's going towards it. So even if they don't get there and get the Mm -hmm. 2.8, you know, annualized by May, or they'll probably just declare victory and and say, we got the soft landing and we've done a good job and really cheerlead things. And um, the effect of this, and I do think it is going to help the stock market stay afloat into the election. And if you go back, you know, we're about the same age and started really paying attention to these things in the late nineties and, and after that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you look at when Clinton was president, there's a cycle of interest rate hikes and the 93, 94 period. And then again, 96 to 98 in which interest rates went up slightly and then were cut without a real recession happening. And the bubble at back then would just get further and further stimulated. Mm-hmm. So to me, this may be similar to those periods before nine, before 2000, before that bubble popped. Mm-hmm. Where in the 90s, there was two hike, hike cycles like we just have gone through, which didn't crash things. But the bubbles inside got bigger. And, and, I do, and, and that's what I really worry about, not this year, but in the future. Um, and I'm not sure when it's going to matter, if it's going to be next year, the year after, the year after that. Mm. But we've got the U.S. debt to GDP is at 125%, and that's higher than it was after World War II. It's the highest in American history. This is the size of the federal debt. The interest on the debt is exploding. Um, and it's set to go past a trillion dollars in itself. And these are things that are at historic levels, but they're not problems now. Uh, but I think they're likely to become problems when the next recession actually does hit. So I, th- I think that's what we're facing in the future. But this year, I guess I guess they're just going to keep things propped up and uh, not, I don't really think much is going to happen in the markets. Hmm. Okay, so, you know, just, I don't know the numbers, man. I can't do all yield curves and this and that. What do I know sure. about that? But I, I do the historical analogies, right, of the 2000 crash and the 2008 crash. So you mentioned where Greenspan did have sort of these smaller boom-bust cycles in the Clinton years that pretty much nobody noticed, right? The dot-com bubble and housing bubble kept growing and growing anyway. And then in 2000, the NASDAQ and the Dow crashed, but the housing bubble kept going. And right. they kept building that up. That didn't crash until 08. And that was what brought down the whole goddamn everything, as everyone remembers, the massive crash of 08. But so there's a couple different sort of uh, historical metaphors I'm reaching for in there in terms of like the time period we're in now, how that compares. You just made a good comparison there to like mid-90s slight corrections and then keep going um, kind of a deal. And then maybe 2007 is fresher on people's mind. You had some bad news, Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers and things like this. I know we're seeing stories about, boy, the 
commercial real estate market sure is sweating. Uh, they've got bad debts come and do, and, you know, bazillions of dollars worth of underwater skyscrapers and all of this stuff. And um, so I, I wonder, uh, you know, I guess you're saying you think that is what they're doing now, essentially holding where they're at, maybe even further cuts that they've decided we're we're not going to allow there to be a crash. We're going to go ahead and keep stimulating as of now. You think they'll be able to put off the crash for another couple of years, you say, but then, in other words, we are right where we were in 06 or 07, where the punishment is coming, but they're kicking the can down the road, essentially. Yeah. In 2006, the real estate market actually peaked that year. And it didn't matter, you know, to the markets really till the fall of 2007. Uh, the Bear Stearns, there's a Bear Stearns hedge fund that crashed. I think it was in July. Just went, you went under uh, July 2007. Um, and then, of course, the banks didn't fail, you know, till 2008 across the board. Um, and this year, you know, we saw... I'm sorry, last year, in March, there was a regional banking crisis with small banks across the entire country. Uh, several went under. The Silicon Valley Bank in California went under. But across the board, regional bank stocks crashed 30% overnight. And the Federal Reserve created an emergency lending program where they could lend any amount of money they'd want for 0% interest and bailed out the entire regional banking system or put a floor underneath it. And, it, and that program's still going on today. So that was a, a crazy emergency measure, you know, that, that they didn't do anything like that in 2008 even. Uh, so they're propping things up. Uh, and uh, you, the, the crisis I'm describing or worried about is the federal debt uh really becoming a problem of course we've heard that about that all our life and it hasn't been a problem yet but uh historically when a country gets to a debt to gdp over 125 percent it eventually becomes a problem mm -hmm. and well, they had to downgrade the rating of america's debt right yeah they did that 2017 or 18 yeah um and in another any, another economic indicator or statistic that's linked to it, uh, which proved to be true in, in the 2000s, is the current account deficit. So the U.S. current account deficit. That's just the annual shortfall of congressional uh, spending? The, the, the current account deficit, it measures a country's uh, credit and debt with the rest of the world. Okay. So back in the 2000s, we were always told uh, China owns all the debt. China owns all the debt. And we have this giant trade deficit. Well, the current account deficit got over 6%. And historically, when a country's current account deficit gets over 5% uh, of GDP, uh, there's an economic crisis. And back then, it happened. Uh, it, you know, we ended up with an economic crisis the, with the housing crash and the banking crash. But interestingly, I was reading a book, you know, years later, 
um, that was by the head of the Bank of England. And he made the comment that the central bankers around the world thought, oh, the U.S. has this current account deficit problem, and therefore it's going to have a debt problem like I'm worried about, and the dollar would fall as a result, and that's not what happened. Instead, the, 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 the housing market blew up, and, and, and there is a debt problem there. But so it's, you know, there, there'll be something that'll happen as a result of all this, but, uh, yeah. Hey guys, I've had a lot of great webmasters over the years, but the team at expanddesigns.com have by far been the most competent and reliable. Harley Abbott and his team have made great sites for the show and the Institute, and they keep them running well, suggesting and making improvements all along. Make a deal with expanddesigns.com for your new business or news site. They will take care of you. Use the promo code SCOTT and save $500. That's expanddesigns.com. Man, I wish I was in school so I could drop out and sign up for Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom instead. Tom has done such a great job on putting together a classical curriculum for everyone from junior high schoolers on up through the postgraduate level. And it's all very reasonably priced. Just make sure you click through from the link in the right margin at scotthorton.org. Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom. Real history, real economics, real education. Hey, y'all, I got a new coffee sponsor, Mundo's Artisan Coffee at mundosartisancoffee.com. When I wake up in the morning, I feel like my brain is all dried out. I need to pour a hot mug of rich, tasty coffee all over it to get it back working again, like 10W30 for the noggin. Though not necessary, it helps if the coffee tastes good. Well, Mundo's Artisan Coffee does taste good. They get the best beans from all around the world, and they don't burn them. Support the show and support your brain at MoondozeArtisanCoffee.com. Just click the link at the right margin at scotthorton.org. Well, you know, I remember Ron Paul saying that there's so many bookkeeping tricks in the government where the agencies owe each other mm. even trillions or hundreds of billions and then also the Federal Reserve, you know, the government owes the Fed, quote unquote, and pays interest on the debt to the Fed. And Ron Paul's going, we could just wipe all of that off with a pen and stop doing that. It's a huge amount of, you know, and I take this personally just because, you know, and, and whatever, every single individual in this country should. Like, think about all of the money that they take from you, how hard you work. For what they deduct out of your check. You don't even get to look at it before they take it away, you know? And then to think that you're just paying the interest on the debt between government departments or to some sovereign, you know, monarchy or whatever dictatorship overseas somewhere uh, or whatever government overseas somewhere whose central bank is sitting on some American bonds. And your whole life, you pay them hundreds of thousands of dollars, whatever it is, the bounty on all of our heads under the IRS that we have to pay through the nose. And it's not even going to kill people, much less help feed some poor old lady. It's just going to pay the interest on the debt to some corporation or some foreign government. It's as much an insult as it is anything else. It's unbelievable that they would treat us this way. You're telling me we're paying a trillion dollars. The people of this country are paying in real money 
a trillion dollars or interest, pardon me, a trillion dollars worth of just interest payments on the debt per year now or starting this year right around here. Is that right? Um, so it's headed towards a trillion by the end of this year in November. I'm looking at an That's article right now from the heritage foundation, right? Do I sound like a raving lunatic out. now? That really is completely insane and intolerable, right? The, the interest on the debt, um, is as big. It's, it's approaching the size of the defense budget is, <laughs> is, it's, it makes up according to this heritage foundation article, 40% of all personal income taxes are now going to the interest on the debt. Let's think about uh, that. And back in October of this year, the, the there was a there was a minor correction in the stock market from July to October, and the Treasury bonds were falling in value too, and the yields were spiking. Now now they're all doing the opposite. The bonds are rallying, but in October they they had been falling for over two years. And they made a short-term bottom in October, which looks like something of a panic bottom. But when that was happening, there are articles everywhere in the financial media about this, about the debt's getting bigger, the interest is getting bigger, and it's a problem. And this is why the yield on the 10-year bond is now over 5%. Now it's below 4%. Uh, but what I'm trying to say is in October – this was actually being talked about a lot. Now it's gone as a story, you know, as a meme or a talking point or whatever. It's it's going away because the market is the stock market's rallying, the bond market's rallying. Uh, so, <laughs> but it'll come back one day, you know, in a year or two. Uh, but but because it's exploding, and and what's going to happen when there's a recession? Um, it'll just explode even more, and then and that's when I think we'll really yeah. get get in trouble but i don't know when that recession's really gonna happen or even uh, yeah it, like you're saying they're backing down and deciding on continuing an inflationary policy for now which yeah. just means that later they're gonna have to raise the interest rates even higher and this is something that we have been talking about you know the experts have been saying to me including you on the show for years is that's the real problem is they're sort of kind of getting away with it now but if interest rates were allowed to go up to their free market level or anything like that, they'd be completely bankrupt. The interest on the debt would be far more than the military budget or the welfare state budget or the running of the government budget at all. Yeah. I mean, it's like they're to me like this whole 2% CPI inflation target. I mean, there's some people – uh, they would argue that's, you know, you shouldn't even, that, that's a target they made up like 20 years ago, you know, and now they're basically saying they just, they're, they have, they say they have a mandate to get to that target, but now they're talking like they just want to approach it. You know, it's, it's just like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so. Well, so, I mean, if you're the king of the treasury department over here, what could we ever do about this? You just... Print the money to pay off the debt and then lob some zeros off the end. I mean, that'll lead to a commie revolution. We've seen that. Or a fascist one. Um, and yet, well, what would happen if they just repudiated it? I think that was what Murray Rothbard said, is they should just say, hey, if you're a U.S. government bondholder, 
sorry, sucker, we're starting over, and then just what are you going to do about it and just move on from there? But I don't know. Do you have any kind of proposal for like how this could be wound down other than I, we could completely abolish the warfare and welfare state and then just pay it all back, pay it all down, but it doesn't sound like that's going to happen either. Well, I mean, the only way to get rid of the situation is, unfortunately, to to print it away. Uh, like after World War II, the U.S. debt to GDP was 110% at its peak, and now it's like 125%. Well, the rest of Europe was heavily indebted too, and the Soviet Union, they – solve this problem by simply devaluing their currency by like 90% in one day by surpri- by surprise. Right. England, you know, in, had inflation for like 10 years. And uh, so one, perhaps one way, what they may actually be trying to do, I, I, I haven't seen this written somewhere, but uh, it's possible that they may be thinking, we're going to take care of this over 10 years and just have these little boom and bust inflation cycles you know, that slowly inflated away over a decade or two decades, meaning that right now, you know, the Fed's raised interest rates and, and um, trying to handle this, you know, and stops. Now they're stopped. And we've come out of a period where, Inflation officially was like 8% annualized in 2022. Um, I mean, the grocery store prices (laughs) went up a lot more than that. Uh, I think they like doubled, you know, from where they were in 2020. The prices of everything has skyrocketed. And that was two years of inflation, uh, basically, 2021, 2022. And they may be thinking... Well, we'll just try to have two or three cycles like that, and and inflation will cut the size of the debt away. But I, I, don't, I mean, that's the only sort of program I can think of to try to make this a not so bad thing to go through. But it seems like a far fetched idea. If it would even, I don't think it would work. But I mean, what do you think they're going to try to do? Or they just think it'll be fine, right? I saw Yellen saying, well. We expect the national debt to get up to $50 trillion by, I forgot, I think she said 2030. That can't be right. Did she really say that? I think it was. I'm not sure. I'd have to go back and look. Um, but, I mean, in our, in our lifetime, that, that 2030, though, uh, I'm not sure that it was – it's probably correct. Uh, that th- This problem I'm talking about, about the you know interest on the debt exploding and this and that, uh, our life, just about, as long as – I can remember. Uh, we've been told 2030s when the crisis is going to happen with uh, Social Security and Medicare and all these kind of things, and and that's what they have been saying and still are saying. So back in the fall, when I was reading about this uh, more actively, this problem, the CBOE was basically saying 2028, 2030, somewhere in that time frame, this will be a problem. But they're not projecting a potential recession and before then and if there is a recession the which i think is likely at some point before those years then this will be a problem earlier than they're predicting or earlier than 2030 
basically. Yeah, crazy. Well, so to switch back to the nearer term, Mike, and the yeah. and the politics of the thing. I mean, essentially, all Austrians are saying all the time, including you and I think me right now, not that I'm really an economist, but I agree with you smart guys a lot, that like if we're not in the middle of a recession, we're in the middle of an inflationary bubble that's going to cause a recession soon. And in this case, it sounds like because of the all the inflationary bubble activity from the printing during the lockdown era and the aftermath of that and then refusing to allow a real correction since then that and they're going to try to prevent it from happening before the election it sounds like too of course does that mean then that this time a year from now they're going to go ahead and jack up interest rates by four points and crash the economy like they did to andrew jackson and blame it all on donald trump well i'm not i'm not sure like um I'm not sure what's going to happen next year. So um, I, I think there's two possibilities. One, uh, the economy is kind of like it is now. Nothing, re- you know, nothing really changes except they've lowered interest rates too quickly without defeating inflation. And then the inflation will come back and then they have to raise interest rates again, like you just suggested. The other scenario would be that um, we're just actually about, there will be a recession. Um, in, you know, we don't see it now, but it could start in the summer. Maybe it starts after the election, but there will be a recession and inflation will probably come down a little and hit their target, but they'll end up lowering rates too much again as a result of the recession. And then the recession will make the deficit explode. Uh, and then we'll have a, a huge, massive problem as a result. So either outcome, you know, <laughs> it's going to be you know, next year or after the election would will be shaky one way or the other, I think. Yeah. All right. Well, so assuming people listening to this show aren't already just living in their car in the Walmart parking lot, completely inflationarily priced out of a decent place to live, and let's say people still are in their house or renting one, maybe have a little bit of money. What should they do now to protect themselves, protect what money they may have that hasn't already been inflated away? Well, um, I'm not. So I'll do that. I've got, a, I mean, I'll just say what I'm doing. I've, I became more cautious last year uh, about the stock market when those regional banks blew up. I, I actually got bullish on the stock market uh, at the end of 2022. But in March, when those banks blew up, I sold half the stocks I own. I didn't sell everything, but I sold half and moved what I sold into CDs and bonds, just getting interest, even though I think one day that's all going to be a problem. But I also got 14% of my money in gold and silver, uh, not gold and silver stocks, but bullion as protection. And if the bond market does blow up and the debt's a problem, 
and at, at some point. Um, there's a book that came out a, a year or two ago called Big Debt Crises, and it's a study of 200 years of financial history, what happens when these situations occur. And the average, the base case is, and it is the U.S. dollar will fall 50% in value. That's actually what happened in the 1970s over 10 years. Um, and to me, that's the biggest risk. It's not you're going to lose your bank account or even the stock market falling. It's that the U.S. dollar falls in value as a result of a debt crisis. So the value of your money as an investor goes down, the average person will experience another big bout of inflation for two or three years. Uh, but the value investments, the, the stock might, you know, your, your stock market account may not go down in value that much, but the real value because the dollar is going down would fall. Um, so historically when a country's currency goes down to value, the price of gold against it goes up two and a half times. So my solution is to own physical gold and silver uh, uh, to, to mitigate that risk. But as far as like trying to make a lot of money or trade this stuff, uh, I don't see much to do this year except be very cautious. What about buying land? Is that as good of an inflation hedge as gold or that's too caught up in the boom bust cycle? But they both are, right? As long as the government's printing money, they got their prices booming. No, I, actually, I, that that's a, a better solution than what, <clears throat> in a lot of ways, a better solution than what I'm saying. Uh, and that's to invest in land or real estate. But I would suggest that the time to do that would be after the next crash. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not not when the debt's blowing up, though. Then it's kind of too late. Uh, but the time to do it would be if there's the start of a recession. Like if you see the stock market, the next time the stock market goes down in a year, 20% or something, and interest rates are cut, uh, then buy, take out loans, buy real estate, buy land, because if I'm correct and there's another inflationary problem, um, the, if you got your interest rates locked in and, and you're buying real estate at, at a, even if it's not gone down, but the mortgage rates are locked in at a low level before interest rates go up the next time you're getting a deal. And then if inflation explodes, you're really getting a deal. So, uh, yeah, that's probably the, a, a a good solution or a good way to uh, a better, the be, that might be the best way to actually try to make money out of it. This mm. whole thing, not, not the stock market, not even gold or silver, but buying real estate, you know, if you can, if, if that opportunity comes. Yeah. Well, you know, um, I'm just too lazy to do that. <laughs> well, you know, uh, a buddy of mine has a vert ramp in his backyard. And in that little bitty neighborhood over there off Airport Boulevard, not to blow out the spot or anything, Burt Dog's welcome, but there's this little old lady, or used to be, I think still is, little old lady who owned about a dozen of these little houses in this neighborhood. And they're starting to tear them down and replace them with 
newer, modern, weird-looking things instead. Mm -hmm. But point being, at least according to the story way I heard, her husband died back in 1960-something or 70-something. But he had set her up owning, you know, maybe it was only a half dozen. Maybe it was just one block, both sides of one block of these little, you know, pure and beam clapboard little things, you know? And she's, that's how he took care of her for all these years, for decades and decades after he died. She was okay because she owned this little grip of houses and these people paying not extraordinary rents at all. I bet they were three and four and $500 rents for most of the time. I'm sure they're higher now, but um, seems like, I don't know. Sure, gold too, whatever, but would she have been able to live off of that if he'd made the same investment in shiny metal as in those houses that she could keep collecting rent from, you know? Well, I mean, probably not. I mean, that, that's the thing. When you, if you have real estate like that, you're making income. And if you buy the real estate and when interest rates are low and then interest rates go up and there's inflation, I mean, you're getting a, a great, you know, you're just buying at a great time. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I mean, it's like, look, it's like when the shutdowns happened in 2020, I thought about buying a house as an investment. It was like 250,000 and now it's worth 400. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that was the right time to do it. Oh, uh, you're telling me, you know, so. <laughs> the prices over here went completely insane in Austin, Texas. And the population of Austin got gentrified right out of town by all the yeah. people coming, you know, buying houses sight unseen from other places, fleeing the lockdowns, but riding on free money that they got on the way, you know? Yeah. Pretty crazy. All right. Well, hell, um, you know, I hope I the know. world doesn't blow up by the... <laughs> I'm sorry. But hopefully the world doesn't blow up in the next 12 months either. So. Yeah, I mean, that'll really screw up the stock market <laughs> if New York City gets nuked, you know? Um, yeah, uh, you know, I'm always, I'm not an investor because I don't have any money, but I'm always trying to figure out, you know, where we are in the boom-bust cycle and what these kooks over at the Fed are trying to do to prevent the consequences of the last thing that they did and whatever, it's an endless cycle over there. And, um, you know, hopefully be of some help to people listening, trying to figure out what to do with their money. But, uh, as always, I can't recommend your website highly enough. It's wallstreetwindow.com, the great Mike Swanson. And he's got, uh, well, you heard him. He says, well, I'll tell you what I'm doing. <laughs> he ain't going to tell you what to do. I'll tell you what I'm doing. I'm investing in this, that, and the other thing. And I'm being real careful about that. And that's the way he talks about all that. And he does, uh. You know, little articles, lots of news, and also these great short YouTube videos explaining what he does. Wall Street Window. Get it? He's just showing you exactly what he's doing as he does his business, trying to make money and trying to uh, stay afloat in this insane quasi-free market economy that we're stuck in here. So uh, please, everybody, check that out, wallstreetwindow.com. And, of course, the great books, The War State and Why the Vietnam War. Thanks very much, Mike. Oh, great talking with you, Scott. The Scott Horton Show, Anti-War Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, APSRadio.com, Antiwar.com, 
scotthorton.org and libertarianinstitute.org.